You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to return to Galatians as we move into a new chapter this morning. Chapter 4, we're going to be looking at the first seven verses this morning. Paul writes, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, O Lord, as we've prayed already for the profundity of your word. And Father, as we look, especially this passage this morning, we ask, O Father, that you would be pleased to teach us, Lord. And even as Peter says, Paul writes things that are hard to understand. Father, we, we recognize there's some difficulties in the verses that we come to. So, Father, be our teacher this morning. Teach us, O Lord. Lead us not just to sort out or to uh, satisfy some vain theological curiosity, but, Father, that, Lord, we'd come to understand the gospel better. We'd come to see you uh, in more detail. We'd come to know you better. We'd come to trust you more. We'd come to uh, align our hearts and lives more and more in accordance with your word, which is to one and the same as to aligning our hearts more and more in the likeness of Jesus. So, Father, do these things we ask for your glory. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. I think I probably should introduce this message this morning before I begin explaining all of this uh, with these words that I have in my notes, and I want to get it right. So um, I think one of the dangers that we see here, and one of the dangers of the Christian faith actually is failing to understand one, failing to understand, failing to appropriate, and flat out forgetting or losing sight of the treasures that we have in Christ Jesus. Failing to understand, failing to appropriate. What do I mean by appropriate? That means taking it to be our own. To appropriate something is to take it to be your own. Oftentimes when appropriation is used to or to appropriate in, in modern parlance, that is an everyday speech. It's got a negative connotation. I don't mean any kind of negative connotation there. I mean all positive. That is the hand of faith that, that reaches from the heart, if you will, and takes the promises of God to be their own, takes Jesus to be their own. That's what I mean by appropriate. There's a danger, always a danger, to not understand, to fail to understand, to fail to appropriate, or to flat out forget, or maybe a better way to lose sight of the blessings that we have in Christ Jesus, the treasures that we have in Christ Jesus. And, and, you know, let let me talk right now about believers 
The true believer, I think those of you who have walked with Christ for any length of time, I think you'll agree with me. Sometimes we lose sight of that, don't we? We lose sight of the treasures that are in Christ Jesus. Or perhaps we flat out forget. Now, as soon as we do that, what do we we inevitably default to? We default to backpedaling in the waters of law-keeping, don't we? Have you ever noticed that about your heart? Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that we can, with backpedaling, that, that the true believer can lose his or her salvation. I'm not suggesting that at all. If we could lose our salvation, we would have already lost our salvation. It's not our hands that are holding on to God that, that, that keeps us there. It's his strong hand holding on to us, right? Everybody okay with that? I see a lot of heads going like this. If you could lose your salvation, you would have already lost your salvation. It'd already be gone. You know, it's an overinflated idea of our personal performance that could even give us a hint that we could actually continue to hold on to God. Uh, we don't want to go down those paths. Uh, that's law-keeping. And that's turning from, as we've seen, law-keeping is distorting the gospel, which is the same as turning our back on Christ, isn't it? That's why this letter is so important. This letter's not easy, is it? Has anybody found this study to be easy? I know I haven't in preparing for these messages, and I've read Galatians many times, and I've studied Galatians, but I've not found preparing for these messages to be easy, especially this morning's message. Uh, Tammy will tell you, I poured a lot of hours into this one. Uh, we're going to look at some things here that are, uh, are, are difficult to get our minds around, but I think once we begin to see them, it suddenly open up, if you will. But back to this. I want us to hold on to these things. One of the great dangers of the faith rests in failing to understand failing to appropriate or losing sight of the treasures that we have in Christ. Now, we talked about the effects of this, if you will, for the true believer. How about for someone who is looking at Christianity, someone who is starting to take in the Christian faith? You know, there's, um, if I might use the language of the Puritans, there was a lot of, the Puritans wrote a lot about this, and they would talk about these various stages that people will sometimes go through as they come to true saving faith. And they used to use the word enlightenment. Enlighten, a person is enlightened. And when they used that statement, many of them weren't talking about true saving faith. They were talking about, okay, some light bulbs have gone off to where they're beginning to see certain truths, if you will. Maybe looking at some of these certain truths from afar, but still being able to see some of these truths. And they used to speak about how dangerous um, this particular place could be because you could still fail to understand all of the truths, if you will, or you could come to understand these truths pretty well, but fail to appropriate them. That is, fail to take them to be your own. Well, think about how miserable eternity would be for a person who stood right at the precipice and looked at all these treasures while they had time and while they had the opportunity, looking at all of these treasures and failing to take them, only to step into eternity without them. I can't even conceive the regret that would await such a one for eternity. So you see it's a dangerous spot. Do you see where I'm going with this? It's a dangerous spot, if you will. Um, People can stall. Uh, They can actually stall and and stall before they reach 
true saving faith. So all this is to say there's a message here for everybody. There's a message here if you're in the faith. There's a message here if you're not in the faith. And that covers everybody, doesn't it? Now, with that in mind, let's begin to try to plow through this. If you look at the first two letters, or first two words, rather, at least in the ESV translation in chapter 4, Paul says, I mean. Now, what that's informing us is that Paul is trying to clarify. And I kind of giggle a little bit when I use the word clarify, because as I've studied through these passages, clarification isn't something that would readily come to mind. Uh, Perhaps a better word would be elaborate. Um, Paul is meaning to elaborate on some things that he's already been talking about. Notice the linkage between verse 1 of chapter 4 and the last verse of chapter 3. Verse 1, chapter 4. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Backing up to verse 29, we'll see linkage. And if you're Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. We see linkage primarily, if you will, with the word heir, don't we? With the word heir. And what is Paul doing? He's also talking about promise. And in the context, he's been talking about the law. And what Paul has been really trying to develop is the relationship between the law and the promise. And this takes us back into the argument that we've been looking. And we could go back as far as we want, but let's quickly go back to verse 10 of chapter 3, and we'll work quickly through. This will not only help us to get the context of Paul's argument, but also serves as a review and help maybe uh, help us come to understand these things a little bit more deeply. In verse 10, Paul says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, what Paul's saying there, we saw in an earlier study, is if you want to go back to law-keeping, fine, but you've got to keep it all in thought, word, and deed. Okay, that's going to lead us to conclude with verse 11. It's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Very clearly. We can't do it. It can't be done. Very clearly. And it's important that we point out right now that no one's arguing that you can in Galatians. I think in many respects it would be easier if they were, if they were just discounting faith in Christ altogether and they were saying, listen, no, it's not faith in Christ, it's law-keeping that gets you to heaven. I think that letter would be easier for us to understand. But it becomes, and, and Satan's devices are to make things blurry, isn't it? He loves to make things blurry. He loves to cloud them so there's just enough truth in it that we almost will bite. We almost bite into the, in the, uh, bite into the bait and take the hook into our mouths, isn't it? No, what they're arguing for is you have to have faith in Christ. See, Satan has no problem telling us, oh, yeah, go ahead, put your faith in Christ. But what he loves to tell us after that is that's not going to get you all the way there. It's only going to get you a percentage of the way there. Aha, you need to add something, says Satan. You need to add something to your faith. Here, they're arguing for circumcision. They're arguing for uh, dietary laws. But as soon as we add a plus sign, where does it stop? If you're willing to add one thing, you're going to be quite willing to add another and another and another. And where are you eventually going to be? You're going to be buried under law-keeping again, aren't you? Paul says, no, 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 no. It's quite evident, verse 11, no one is justified before God by the law. Paul is here talking about things that all parties are agreed upon. You have to have faith in Christ. Now, in verse 12, well, verse 11, he says, it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. A tough little verse to understand until we paraphrase it. What's Paul saying? 
Law-keeping is radically different than living by faith. That's what he's saying with verse 12. These two things are radically different. Living by faith, we're trusting in the law-keeping of another person. We're trusting in the law-keeping of Christ in our place. Law-keeping is based on our personal performance, a world of difference between the two. But again, when we fail to see our blessings in Christ, we backpedal to that law-keeping, don't we? We backpedal to that. And so it's such a powerful message here for us. Verse 13, Christ... Isn't verse 13 wonderful? If you spent time meditating on verse 13 in between Sundays? If you haven't, please do. Look at verse 13. For Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. There's where the freedom comes from. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So then Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Hold on to verse 14 because it's going to come up very powerfully in the passage that we come to this morning in chapter 4. Now, Paul again begins to elaborate. Verse 15, he says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises. See, Paul's talking about the promises. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. In an earlier message, we saw that these promises ultimately point to Christ, don't they? We could put it this way. All of God's promises find their yes in Jesus, right? And then in verse 17, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Paul's talking about the history of salvation. The promises are made to Abraham, chapter 12, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and onward. Promises made to Abraham. Comes 430 years before Moses gets the law. Right? And he's saying that the law does not annul the promises formerly made to Abraham. Now, we have tried to put ourselves in the shoes of the ancient Israelite here and imagine, okay, for 1,500 years, we've had the Mosaic law, haven't we? And here we're listening to Paul. What's Paul talking about? He goes, no, your justification is through faith in Christ. What's the natural question we're all going to be asking one another? What's the point of Moses? We could put it this way. Why then the law, Paul? Tell us. How does the law fit? And this is what Paul asks in verse 19, isn't it? He said it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through an angels by an intermediary. Did everybody get that? That's clear, right? This is a rough go, isn't it? What's Paul saying there? He's saying it was added because of transgressions. And we looked at the uses of the law, didn't we? What does the law do? It reveals sin. I wouldn't know what it was to covet unless the law said thou shalt not covet. So it reveals sin. What else does it do? It actually increases our tendency to want to sin, doesn't it? That's helpful, huh? But it also turns sin into transgression. You know, I used the example of a of a speed limit sign. And we were out of town this week for a little bit, and I was traveling through places, and I was thinking of that sermon illustration a lot. And by the way, don't follow your GPS when you're in these places. It can get you a ticket. I was watching that, and it doesn't. If you're watching the speed limit on your GPS, it doesn't turn fast enough oftentimes. 
You'll see that sign. It says, slow ahead. It'll say, you know, reduce speed ahead. It's good to watch for that sign because your GPS doesn't tell you that. GPS still says 55. You're in a 25 zone. Several times. I don't mean to be picking on anybody, but I found myself doing the same thing. Um, where was I anyway? <laughs> where was I? Uh, transgression. Thank you, Dean. So thank you, sir. <laughs> Thumbs up, man. <laughs> Keep up the good work, please. <laughs> this thing isn't over yet. <laughs> May require your services in the future. What does, what, does, what does the law do? It transforms sin, which is bad enough, into transgression. Why? Because it sets out a boundary line that we cross over. If I see that stop sign and I continue, or see that speed limit sign and I continue going 55 when it says 35, okay, I'm sinning worse than if I'd never saw the sign. I'm sinning both ways, but I'm sinning worse if I see the sign and I continue to go because I'm transgressing. The, the, the citizens of that community, the laws of that community said, listen, this is a safe, you, you're welcome to travel through our community, but please do so at this, at this speed limit so that you, you will work with us in protecting our citizens here. We put the citizens of the community at risk when we drive through their towns fast like that. We put their children at risk. We put their wives at risk. We put people at risk. And what they're saying is, please, slow down as you go through here. We see the sign we go anyways. We turn sin into transgression, don't we? And you look at these laws and you say, wait a second, what's the law doing? The law is, is it helping me obey? The, 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 the point Paul's making here is, no, it doesn't help you obey. All it does is follow you along and reveal your faults to you. We all love people like that, don't we? People that just like, I saw what you did back there. I saw what you did. I saw what you were thinking. I saw what you were doing back there. You didn't get that right. You didn't get that right. I mean, that's... Miserable, isn't it? Now, it would be wonderful. We could say, oh, the law is just evil. Let's just get rid of the law. But we can't do that. Why? Because the law is holy, righteous, and good, isn't it? Now, you can start to see, if you're taking the law seriously in your life as, fallen, as a fallen sinner, you can suddenly see how the law is really starting to confine you and constrain you and close in on you. Might even say it in prisons, doesn't it? It won't help me get out of here, but all it continues to show me is I belong in here. And that's what Paul says. Why then the law, verse 19? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Notice, until, the word until, that's a time frame. It's temporary. Paul's telling us it's temporary. The Mosaic law is temporary, is what Paul is saying. We need to be careful with that. Because people said, oh, the Mosaic law is temporary. These laws are all temporary. Now we're in Christ. We don't have to worry about the law at all. People say that. No, not so fast. But for right now, for justification purposes, the law is temporary, right? We cannot, we cannot be justified by law-keeping is what Paul's saying. He's not saying the law has no purpose in our life whatsoever. He is saying that we cannot get right with God through our personal law-keeping, right? You see the distinction? We're going to get more of that when we get into chapter 5. But for now, we're talking about justification. And Paul wants us to see the superiority of the promise over the law, if you look at verse, verses 19 and verses 20. 
Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had made. Now here's where he's showing its, in, its inferiority. It was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. What's Paul saying there? He's saying, listen, the promises God gave directly to Abraham. But the law he gave through angels to Moses. And Moses comes down off the mountain, doesn't it, with the law. So we're seeing the temporary nature of it, and we're seeing the inferiority of it in comparison to the superiority of the promise. Does that make sense? Everybody okay? All right, verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Last week, I think I was saying something like this. The law imprisons us, and we become in this prison, and there's no way out. We see no way out until we see the way of faith. And the way of faith is the door that opens, isn't it? Now, verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian. And here we have this metaphor that Paul's adding, guardian. We're going to see this again, although it's a different word. We're going to see it again in chapter 4. But for now, we're seeing this guardian. And who is this guardian? This guardian is a disciplinarian. Paul's making a reference to something to everyday life that people in that culture would have understood. Wealthy estates, they had these uh, people, they were usually slaves, elderly men, uh, who would function as guardians. They were disciplinarians. They were assigned to children, typically between ages 6 and 16 or 18. And what did they do? They pointed out their faults. In order to train them, if you will, the old King James translation used the word schoolmaster. I don't know that most of your modern translations move away from the schoolmaster because they weren't primarily teachers, as that would suggest. They were primarily disciplinarians. And that fits better, the context here. What is the law? It disciplines, doesn't it? It's not that it's bad. It's holy, righteous, and good. It reveals the character of God. What's God like? Look at the law, and you'll see what He's like. Now, in verse 25, but now faith has come. We're no longer under a disciplinarian or a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ to put on Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Please always keep in mind verse 28 does not remove distinctions from one another. It doesn't make us genderless as some would suppose. It doesn't remove our ethnicity. I, we, we looked at the book of Revelation where uh, John is given that that glimpse, if you will, of the consummated kingdom, and he sees people from every tribe, tongue, and language, doesn't he? And nation. Obviously, these people are one. That's the point. But their ethnic dis distinctions are still intact. God gets much more glory through that, by the way, than making us uniform. He brings us into one. And the amazing thing about that is, what are all these different types of people doing together, loving each other like this? Because that's not what they do in this fallen world. That is what we do in the kingdom of God, isn't it? That is what we do. Verse 29, if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And this is what I mean, he says in verse 1. This is what I mean, that the heir 
As long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Has that verse ever made you cause you to scratch your head? I mean, let's think about it. Again, let's try to step in the shoes of an um, ancient Israelite, if you will, or, for this matter, an ancient Galatian. Okay, we all, let's say we're all going to step in the shoes of servants. We all work for a wealthy master. And someone comes along and says, you know, the heir child, the son who's going to inherit this whole thing, he's really no different than any of you. What would we have to say to that? So what are you talking about? He's no different than us. He's the owner of everything. I mean, one of these days, the date set by his father, he is going to inherit this whole thing. That's not in our future. And besides that, look at the education he's getting. That isn't the same kind of education that we're getting. Look at all of the pampering he gets. That isn't. I think we could just go down the list. Wouldn't we? Wouldn't we? I mean, wouldn't we have a beef with Paul for saying and suggesting such a thing? And this is this is one of those places where a lot of people say, okay, you can't trust the Bible because it's just full of things that just don't make any sense. And if nobody really bothers to try to understand what Paul's doing here or try to understand the literary device that Paul's using here, uh, we may come to that conclusion. But verse 2 shines a lot of light on it. Paul says in verse 2, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. For sake of for understanding, let's read both one and two together. The heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now, Paul's using a literary device that we use all the time, known as a perbole. We might not know what it's called, but has anyone ever said, I am starving? My guess is everyone in this room has said, I'm starving. Did that mean that you were suffering from such grave and dire malnutrition that you were just about to perish? Yeah, right. Someone's waving their head, yes. What are we saying when we do that? We all understand what we're saying. We're exaggerating, aren't we, to make a point. That's what hyperbole is. We're exaggerating to make a point. That's what Paul is doing here. Suddenly the contradiction vanishes. Paul is, Paul is purposely exaggerating. He's not saying there's no difference between this heir child and a servant or a slave, if you will, uh, in the estate. Of course there's differences. Paul knows there's differences. But there's one aspect that Paul wants to point to for sake of illustration that's the same. Both the, the servant and the heir child are under guardians and managers for this particular time. I, I can't read these verses, and I always want to be careful with these illustrations because I do not want to turn our youngsters from, if, if our youngsters like school, I'm really happy for you. If you like school, I want to encourage you. Um, I want to encourage you all the way. Um, grade school for me was okay. Um, there were lots of things I'd rather done. High school was absolutely torturous for me. Again, I don't want to, listen, if you like high school, um, I know where Shine's at on this. We've had some private discussions on these matters. Um, Isaac, Adeline, uh, don't want to discourage you from, but it was torturous for me. 
Sunday afternoon, oh, man, tomorrow i got to get up and do that thing. The first day of school was the worst day. First day back from, and I have to go bring that up because a lot of us are like about to start that first day for the season, right? I hope you're looking forward to a new season, and I hope you're looking forward to that, as many are. Good. Keep up the good work. Unfortunately, that wasn't me. I'm like, I don't know how many days we got left, but I know today there's, there's more of those days than there will be for the rest of the entire year. I didn't like it. But on Monday morning, what did I do? I got up and went to school. We didn't skip school when we were kids. We didn't fake that we were sick. We, I don't recall doing that. We just went to school. We hated it, but we went to school. And that, to me, I think that gives us a great illustration here. I mean, all of us did it, regardless of what your station is in life, because we were under guardians and managers. We were, we're, we're under the various laws of the states, aren't we? This is what you, you, you're required to get an education. This is what you have to do. And that's the point that Paul is making here. This heir child... He's not free to spend his inheritance right now. He's not free to wake up on a Monday morning, for example, and do whatever he wants. No. When he wakes up, he, he may be going to a different school, but when he wakes up, he's still nevertheless doing what he is told, isn't he? And that's the point Paul's making. In this sense, we're all the same here. We're all the same. And he's going to do this until a certain time set by his father. See the temporary nature of this. Paul's talking about salvation history here, and he's pointing to the temporary nature of the Mosaic Covenant is what he's pointing to and how that fits into the overall time scheme or the overall plan of God's salvation is what Paul's doing. In verse 3, he says, In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, that would be clear as could be if we understood what is meant by the elementary principles of the world. What does that mean? What are the elementary principles of the world? Now, as I speak this way, don't get the impression that we can't understand Galatians because the general message of Galatians is really clear, isn't it? We are justified by faith in Christ Jesus. And we are 100% justified by faith in Christ Jesus. And if we add anything to, that, anything to that, we're turning our backs on Christ Jesus. That's clear, isn't it? But some of these other details, we've got to reach for, we've got to roll up our sleeves. What is meant by the elementary principles of the world? There are basically three meanings. The elementary principles is one word being translated into English with the phrase elementary principles. And this one word has three basic meanings. It can mean the essential components or the fundamental components of the universe. In Paul's day, this was expressed by the philosophers as earth, uh, water, air, and fire. If you're familiar with ancient uh, Greek philosophy, you'd be familiar with those categories. They all used to argue, no, the most fundamental principle of the universe is earth. No, that's stupid. It's water. Uh, no, it's not water. It can't be water. It's air. No, it's not air. It's fire. And they had these debates and what have you. And that's one of the meanings of this word is it's pointing to the fundamental components of the universe. Like, okay, how that fits into Paul's argument, well, that's going to be another step here. But another meaning of this is the essential principles of an area of study. 
And that's exactly how this word is used in Hebrews. You don't need to turn there, but just listen to this verse as I read it to you. The author to the letter to the Hebrews is using that word exactly this way when he says, chapter 5, verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles. Basic principles, that's this word being translated. The basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. And what's, what's the author to the letter of Hebrews been doing throughout his argument there? He's been giving them the basic principles of the faith, primarily in showing that Jesus is greater than angels, right? Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is a greater high priest. Jesus is superior in every way. That's what he's been doing, giving them the basic principles. So very clearly, that's a usage of the word. So fundamental components of the universe, basic principles, if you will, of an area of study. There's a third meaning. And that's spiritual beings. Now, a lot of scholars will reject that meaning, that that could be the meaning here, because they will say that um, this meaning, we have no extant um, examples in the literature that remains of the word being used that way this long ago in the New Testament age, as the New Testament is being written in the days of Paul. We don't have any examples. Well, it's a little bit of an argument from silence. There are a lot of other scholars that say, yeah, we don't have any extant examples of this, but they fully believe that the word was being used that way. So that word could, could refer to spiritual beings. It could refer to the, essential, the essentials or the basics or the ABCs, if you will, of a particular area of study. Or it could be used, if you will, to talk about the fundamental components of the universe. I know that's a lot to hold on to. Why am I sharing all three of these with you? Well, what is it as we look at this? What is, what is it? And a lot of scholars will say, well, it's number two and number three. It's the principles of the faith and its spiritual beings. Why would they say that? Well, what enslaves, what enslaves us? What blinds our minds? We can, we can look at what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, can't we? where he says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Who is the God of this world? That is Satan himself. He is a spiritual being. And he has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the glory of Christ. Right? Everybody okay with that? Spiritual beings. And what is it they're blinded to? They're blinded to the essential components of the faith. So two and three sound really good. However, Douglas Moo, and I'm indebted to Douglas Moo for this, uh, Douglas Moo says, you know, number one, actually, maybe number one is the best. And then someone will say, wait, the fundamental components of the world? You're talking about like fire and earth and water and air? How's that fit into the context of this? Well, he points to the fact that what were they worshiping in antiquity? The sun god? The earth, and for that matter, as things changed, are there people today worshiping the earth? Mother earth? Better believe there are. Worshiping the sun, the moon, and the stars. So what are they doing? They're worshiping these fundamental components, if you will. Perhaps the sun being fire. Um, worshiping these basic components and from there establishing spiritual beings to these components 
And from there, developing these rituals and what have you, these basic elements of their faith. So Douglas Moodling's on number one. Now, you can take this for all that it's worth. I'm going to tell you where I personally land on this. And you can take that or you can leave it. But I don't think we need to make a choice here. I don't see any reason why we can't take all three. Because I think there's an element of all three in here. And I think there's a simpler way of putting this that I think really opens this up. At least it's helped me. Is what we have being described here is a fallen heart outside or apart from Christ. Paul says in verse 3, in the same way, okay, he's talking about the fact that people are under these managers, if you will, and these guardians. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. You know, I talked about doing evangelism on the streets of Pittsburgh when I was in seminary. You you knock on the door and people answer the door and we begin to um, talk to them about their faith. And I don't think there were any exceptions. What were people, what were people leaning on? You know, you asked a simple question, how, you know, if you were to die today and you were to go before God and he was to ask you, why should I let you into my kingdom? Unanimously, what did they point to? The essential principles of the world. What are the essential principles of the world? Well, I know I'm not perfect, but I think that the good things that I've done in the end are going to outweigh the bad things that I've done. These aren't their exact words, but this is their message over and over and over again. Over and over and over again. And those who study false religions, those who study all these world religions, they don't want to call them false religions, they call them world religions. They have one thing in constant, and they have one constant. They're all based on human performance. Whether they're worshiping the earth, if we're worshiping the earth, well, then we better start behaving on this earth and we better start going through all the stuff we need to go through to take care of Mother Earth, right? Uh, down the line you go. Uh, regardless of what it might be, what do all these things have in... in, 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 in um, what, what's the common denominator among all these things? Personal performance. So Paul's talking, uh, ultimately, and, and really, let's think this through for a minute. This is the commonality that the ancient Israelite has with the ancient Galatian. And what is that? Both groups are under the curse of the law. So yesterday, um, yesterday was kind of neat. We, Tammy and I drove up to uh, the Squirrel Hill area up to... Uh, uh, Murray Avenue, actually. We were on Murray Avenue. We were there to visit a music store. But the last time I was on Murray Avenue, I was up there with a friend of mine. And what was I doing there? I, was, uh, I had the privilege of teaching a couple classes at the seminary. And there were three semesters that I taught. And through the course of those semesters, after class... I would go meet this friend on Murray Avenue, and what we do, there used to be an old stone wall. It's not, best I could tell, meandering through traffic yesterday, it looked like the wall had been removed and they'd put new pavers down. Um, but I couldn't, there was little cars going everywhere, and I couldn't fix my, my attention solely on it. But it looked to me like the wall that we used to sit on, just right up from the Starbucks, 
was gone, but we used to sit on that wall and we used to pray for the Jewish community right there in Squirrel Hill. At that time, there was approximately 55, 60,000 people in the Jewish community there. Um, and that's what we used to do. That was the last time I, I was there. What does that community have in common with the people that aren't part of that community who are yet apart from Christ? We have this law problem. We have this in common. We have to, whether, whether we've grown up in one of, the, one of the synagogues on Murray Avenue, and there are a few, or we've grown up in the hood, we have to give an account of our lives to God. It makes no difference. It's a game changer, and it's a, it levels the playing field, doesn't it? And the fact is we can't do it. Now, the world says, the basic principles of the world said, yeah, but God knows that because we're only human, and he's going to judge us on a curve. But what does the Scriptures teach us? The Scriptures teach us there's no reason for God to judge on a curve because he has given us salvation by faith in Christ Jesus, who has kept the law perfectly for us. And that's Paul's point. If you're going to start keeping the law, go ahead, but you've got to keep it perfectly in thought, word, and deed, and you've got to keep it all. Now, we know that that's impossible. There's another way. It doesn't matter who your daddy is, as they say in the South. Do you know who my daddy is? It don't matter who your daddy is. It don't matter who your daddy is when it comes to this. Whether he's uh, Rabbi Abraham or whether he's just John Smith who's out somewhere delighting in his evil. It doesn't matter who your daddy is. We have to give an account of our lives to God where we will be placed right before the straight edge of his divine perfection. That should just be terrifying to us if we're not completely asleep. If you don't find that statement terrifying, you are completely asleep. We can't do it. But we're all going to be required to do it. God knows we can't do that. That part is true. That's why he has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus does do it, doesn't he? Continue to read. Looky there. But when the fullness of time had come, what's that pointing to? Oh, read on. God sent forth his son, born of a woman. You know what? That takes us right back to Genesis 3.15, doesn't it? It takes us right back to Genesis, the third chapter of the Scriptures where we have a promise of a son who is going to come. And that son is going to do what? He is going to redeem human humanity, isn't he? Well, that son has arrived, Paul tells us, when the fullness of time had come. That's the time appointed by the Father. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. How is he born under the law? Jesus comes, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus comes as the last Adam, Right? And what is his purpose? His purpose is to obey that law perfectly, to live the life that none of us could live so that he's a perfect sacrifice to offer himself on the cross, but also so that he has a perfect righteousness to give to us that we receive by faith. That's appropriating. That's taking that righteousness that Jesus is offering us to be our own. That's taking him to be our own. And what are these treasures? Look at verse 5 to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive it, might receive what? Adoption. 
Jesus puts it this way, you know, or John puts it this way in, the, in verse 11 of chapter 1 of his gospel, uh, to those who received him, he gave what? The exousia, the right to become children of God. How do we receive him? Again, that's this idea of appropriating. That's this idea of taking. What is appropriating? It's taking Jesus, taking him to be ours. As soon as we take him to be ours, guess what? We're adopted. We're in the family. We're in. Now, how often do we lose track of that when we've sinned against God? And there it is, maybe nighttime. For me, a lot of times it's nighttime. How often do we forget that we're at the end of the day? If you're in Christ, you're, you're a son or a daughter of God. How do we discipline our own children? Do they ever cease to be our kids? Of course not. We can be very angry with them. Do they ever cease to be our kids? And if we can be this way, if fallen human beings can be this way, how much more patient is God going to be? Let's never presume upon his patience, but let's take in what we have here. See the treasures we have in Christ. The moment you put your faith and trust in Christ, you receive the right to become a child of God. You, you receive the right to be a son or a daughter of God. How quickly we can lose sight of that as true believers, can't we? Oh, Lord, I've really blown it. If I make it up to you, then, you know, I'm just not worthy to be your son. That's true. I'm not worthy to be a son of God. I'm not even close to being worthy of such a thing. But that's the point, isn't it? That's called mercy. It's called grace. Jesus did this to redeem us. We were under the curse of the law. Jesus, Jesus underwent the curse of the law in order to redeem us who are under the curse of the law. That's going back to verse 13 of chapter 3, to redeem us. Chapter 4, verse 5, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. Here's one of the promises of the, of, of the blessings of Abraham, and that is the Holy Spirit. He comes to dwell in all who are his. There's no one who has Christ who does not have the Holy Spirit. Everyone who has the Holy Spirit has Christ. Both of these things are true. Notice the intimacy of the word Abba, Father. Abba is Aramaic, and it's this intimacy. If you're in Christ, when you cry out to the Father, you know, by the way, this word crying, that's the same verb it's used of Jesus crying in the, um, in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night he's arrested, by the way. Same verb. Let's think about that. Jesus is crying to his father, Abba, Father. If you're in Christ Jesus this morning, you, you have that right too. More so do you have that right. God delights in it when you take and make use of that right. Just a little bit more, verse 7. So you're no longer a slave. Notice how Paul's wrapping this up. You're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So when we've blown it really bad, let us always remember, we've blown it as a dearly loved son or daughter if we're in Christ Jesus. There's a big difference. 
We're not mongrels before in Christ. We're part of a family. And for that matter, did Jesus, did we take Jesus by surprise with what we just did? When the, when the, the, the moment we put our faith and trust in him, however long ago that was, whether it was last week or it was 20 years ago, did Jesus not see this coming? Did God not see this coming? Did this take God by surprise? Of course not. More so did Jesus see this coming. More so he took the whooping for it. He took the beating for it. It's not a surprise to him. There's nothing that we can do to surprise him. Nothing. You mean to tell me he loves us that much? Yes, he does love us that much. It's almost incomprehensible, isn't it? The word that's used throughout the Old Testament is the word hesed, and I've already told you that word is undefinable. That's the, that's the love that God has for his children. Verse 7, so you're no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. I think it's time to wrap up. Do you agree? No. I think it's definitely time to pray. Can we agree on that? Heavenly Father, we thank you for these great truths that we find here. Our minds can only take so much of this, Father. We're all in different places. Some of us, by your grace, have an increased capacity to take in more. But for some of us who are hearing these things for the first time, probably 20 minutes ago, we were full. Oh, Lord, we thank you and we ask that you would meet everyone here in this room with these wonderful truths. And, Father, help us to not stall. If we've yet to understand these truths, help us to understand them. If we've yet to appropriate these truths, help us, O oh Lord, to take them to be our own. Father, if we're losing sight of these things, Father, and backpedaling into the waters of law-keeping, Father, speak to our hearts, Lord, and remind us afresh of the treasures we have in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for these things in his precious name. Amen.